Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is MG Gurbajani, co-founder and CEO of Kuvama. Before you think about B2B software, enterprise software sales cycles, it's hard to sell and it's hard to buy. We want to make it easy. If you double click on that, given that we're value focused and outcomes focused, we see that it would dramatically reduce sales cycle lengths. So getting stakeholders aligned on value on both sides would be a big value driver. Deal sizes increasing, win rates increasing, but the bigger impact would be, right? It's not just about landing that first deal, but how can you grow, expand, retain that customer? So ultimately all this would point to an uptick in your NDR or NRR, net dollar retention or net revenue retention. This is MG. He's been obsessed with customer value for nearly two decades. Over the last 17 years, he has helped over 80 global B2B customers across manufacturing, distribution, high-tech and software realize their monetization potential. In 2012, he joined Pros, where he led the team in the development of customer value quantification tools and methodologies in response to the company's shift to a SaaS strategy. His focus was on increasing win rates, deal size, average selling price of solutions and maximizing customer retention rate. As the software industry moved to SaaS, he realized that the shift of power to the customer was inevitable. These inflection points became the founding idea behind Kuvama, which MG co-founded in 2017 and leads as their CEO. The belief? Successful relations start with doing discovery right, by focusing on customer outcomes. But this is easy to say, but much harder to do. And as such, Kuvama is on a mission to help B2B software companies and their customers connect on value. And this inspired me, and hence I invited MG to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way we deal with selling enterprise software. MG digs into the big lessons learned from his years in value engineering on the sales side, and how he found his breakthrough by flipping the focus to the buy side. Lastly, he shares his advice on creating a software business that the world will talk about, and his key takeaways on the do's and don'ts to make fundraising more effective and motivating. By listening to this podcast, you'll learn four things. Firstly, how to discover and demonstrate value for your SaaS suite 24 by 7. Secondly, that we're often optimizing a roadmap for the wrong things and how to go around that. Thirdly, that you can create defensible differentiation by not only focusing on your customers, but on your customers' customers. And fourthly, 
That a solid way to differentiate yourself is in your ability to not only commit to the value you deliver, but also how you engineer for that. Well, hi, MG. Thank you for making the time and being a guest on the call today on the podcast. Absolutely, Ton. Thank you so much for having me. My first podcast interview, so very grateful for the opportunity. Okay. <laughs> hopefully, I won't scare you away. And hopefully, there will be many, many more following <laughs> because of the inspirational conversation we're going to have. You know, when I saw what the Japanese Kuvama is doing, it was almost like I was working there myself. Yeah, it's so close to what I preach and what I talk about all the time and big part of what my wrote, I wrote my book about. So it was an easy call for me to say, hey, let's be a guest because you're creating a software company around it and I haven't made that step yet. But well, one, get, day, one, day you'll be, you, one day you'll be competing with us then, Tom. Or maybe I'll join you. <laughs> or maybe, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting the evangelist back in me. No, I mean, but let's introduce you a little bit to the audience. If you would have to describe yourself and characterize what makes you you, what words would come up? You know, Ton, if you had asked me this question five years ago, the word I would have definitely not used is entrepreneur. But okay. the journey over the last few years, I would say entrepreneur, there was something inside me that surfaced. So I would definitely say entrepreneur as one of the three words. Second one would be evangelist, one of the, I would say, natural characteristics of the way I engage and communicate is sharing and telling stories. So very much see myself or trying to be more of an evangelist. And the third one would be let's say, instinctual. And nice. Yeah, my training and background has very much been analytical and data science and consultancy and lots of lots of book learnings but i feel like as i'm progressing in my career and on this kuvama journey then learning to trust my instincts more and more has been something that yeah again on that path to being more instinctual nice i like those words i mean the entrepreneurship of course i've heard that one before but the evangelist is less of a word as being used i'm completely I mean, I love that words and I love that role very much because I've been, I've been a chief evangelist myself and instinctual is a really nice one. Yeah, good. Now let's go like wind the clock back a little bit. You started Kuvama in, in November 2017, I saw on LinkedIn. What did you see around that time or I think before that time? That What problem did you see in the market that wasn't solved, that was underserved, that was screaming for a new approach? Yeah, so Don, the journey started before 2017 and myself and my co-founder, Alex, we were part of what was called back then a customer value management team. And we were helping the company that we worked for, I would say a very forward thinking or value forward company. We were helping them with their transition from the old school on-premise to become more of a SaaS company. And there were a lot of challenges associated with making that transition. The challenge we focused on was focused around value. And we pitched the idea of forming this team to the CEO. And we were a team of eight expensive consultants that were helping the company 
communicate value in the sales cycle. Once the customer was live, we were helping them measure and communicate value. And we were doing all of this with people and Excel spreadsheets. And I would say to summarize, we had limited success. We had pockets of success. But at the end of the day, this wasn't a scalable solution. And we started the consultancy again, solving this problem from a slightly different lens, looking at it more from a pricing angle. But again, the tools that we were giving our customers were these big, clunky spreadsheets, and there was still a lot of human power required. So after solving this same problem set over and over again, we finally said, like, look, there has to be a a product angle here. Companies need infrastructure. And that's really what got us down this path of becoming a SaaS company ourselves. So I guess, nice. if I, yeah, so I guess, you know, to, to stay, take a step back and summarize the macro change over the last decade, I mean, we all know that software companies have moved to SaaS and if they haven't moved, they're very close to moving. But what that means is that the customer has all the power, which, yeah. and the implications is like, okay, great. It's become easy to buy in the SaaS world, but it also means that customers with all the power, they can churn more easily. And what that means is it is really on the software solution provider to discover and demonstrate value 24-7. We feel like companies, this is not new. Companies were doing this. They were bringing on value consultants, they were building their own Excel tools, and there were some ROI calculators on the market today. But fundamentally, we saw the gap as being there's no infrastructure to solve this today. And that's really where the inception for the Kubama platform came from. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I've been exactly in that same situation at Unit 4. You know, I've been in that transition. I've been in the situation where the shift happened from really vendor in the driver's seat towards the customer in the driver's seat the struggle that sales had getting the story right in that new era. So I hear you and I feel you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, what is the opportunity if you get this right? If the world starts to embrace the Kuvama infrastructure, what is the before and after here? So in one sentence, I would say that before you think about B2B software, enterprise software sales cycles, it's hard to sell and it's hard to buy we want to make it easy. We want to make it easy to buy and sell enterprise software. If you double click on that, given that we're value focused and outcomes focused, we see that it would dramatically reduce sales cycle lengths. So getting stakeholders aligned on value on both sides would be a big value driver, deal sizes increasing, win rates increasing, but the bigger impact would be Right. It's not just about landing that first deal, but how can you grow, expand, retain that customer? So ultimately, all this would point to an uptick in your NDR or NRR, net dollar retention or net revenue retention, whichever one you fancy. We see the yeah. impact all pointing there. Nice. We're getting really interesting to see like what you've done here. we get to that in a moment. Let me see. Yeah, I mean, you started the company then in November 2017 together with your co-founder, Alex started building. I mean, the whole notion of value selling is not new. 
there were vendors on the market. I mean, I happen to work in the past with companies like Shark Finesse and these type mm -hmm. of vendors. Well, how did you decide to kind of do things differently? Because you also said you came from a spreadsheet angle and something needed to change. So I'm always interested to understand how you, what choices do you make to get a product that is super valuable, that shifts that value, yeah, that shifts value to, in the eyes of your customer, which is a SaaS business at the end. What have you done differently? What choice did you make to get started and to get to a route to market fast? Yeah, so I guess first thing, Don, we did not start building product. We started as a traditional management consultancy. So the first three years of the business was really selling and delivering consulting engagements where we saw this problem over and over. And by building these tools in Excel, what we found mm -hmm. is that adoption was limited, especially salespeople giving them clunky macro-enabled spreadsheets was never going to be you know, something that they're going to wake up in the morning and say, I want to use that whole ugly spreadsheet. So really the motivation was like, okay, what can we do differently that would drive adoption? But then the second point you made around you know, companies like Shark Finesse that you've experienced working with and also a lot of you know, ROI calculators and tools in the market out there yeah. is we had a strong point of view that the solution is not about building a better calculator. And it's not about coming up with more sophisticated calculations behind the scene that would spit out a better ROI. We looked at it more from a buyer perspective. How can we solve so that it's not just easy to use, but we're really focusing on what are the challenges that the software buyer buyers are looking to solve. So taking a step back from yeah. equations and quantification, but really in simple statements, like what do you really want to solve from the solution and starting there? So starting with what is the pain that needs to be solved before moving to what is the KPI impact? What is the value hypothesis based on that? And then the last step can be what is the ROI? In our experience and in our point of view, it's really, you know, once you get alignment on where is the big value, being accurate to two decimal places of accuracy doesn't actually matter all that much. Nope. So I would say that's True. fundamentally what we decided to do differently. Let me make a small interruption here. MG just made a critical remark about how they found defensible differentiation from the start. Not by building a better ROI calculation, but by understanding what is stopping the buyer and the seller to get closer to each other. And that's all about mutual alignment on the big picture value. And this allowed them to design their application fundamentally different, focused on the adoption by the buyer and establishing credibility from the start. It's a trade remarkable software companies master. They master the art of curiosity. And with that, they focus on the essence so they can create new value possibilities. That's noticed and that creates their momentum. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Really, really nice. I can so much see that in front of me and also the struggles that we had at Unit 4 and kind of get that tool adopted because it wasn't indeed about the calculation. It was really about also helping the salespeople yeah, do discovery in a much better way. Mm -hmm. This is what you what you just talked about. So 
you sort of flipped it around and started at the beginning and get a conversation going with a customer and then bring them along the journey with that. Absolutely, absolutely, Ton. And to the point about flipping it around, you know, our early customers and we were still nervous about, well, will salespeople actually use this? Our first customer, things kind of started out as they would with most software, most tech implementations where you have a set of early adopters and they're oftentimes the best performers that loved what Kuvama was doing, wanted to start using it. But then there was still the fat middle where it was a bit of pushing a boulder up a hill to get them to use it. And then there was a turning point. And the turning point was exactly, as you mentioned, that flipping it around. What the seller started hearing was that the end customer, they are actually enjoying the interaction with the Kuvama platform. And rather than it being a one-way, here's what the solution would do for you, it was giving the buyer an easy way to input and to build consensus with the other stakeholders. So all of a sudden, the sellers are saying, oh, hang on, our buyers are really enjoying using this. I'm going to use it in my next meeting. And that really started ramping up the adoption. And today, we've definitely, I think, come a long way in terms of the overall adoption numbers, which is the number one metric that we look at. Really cool. And that is what it's really all about. You know, the moment you got your adoption going, the rest is a flywheel. It's interesting that you're actually saying that it was not about the salespeople at the SaaS vendor, but it was the customers of that particular organization that needed to love it. So, yeah, I mean, what I typically, of course, see from the past is that the moment you came with a calculator, and when you talk, for example, to a decision maker, and whether it's a CFO or someone in procurement, they always hate it because, of course, they're going to see a big number coming out at the end. Yeah. But yeah. now they are... I think what this is doing for you then is that it drives the conversation. It actually makes them think and clarify what they're really about to solve. That's exactly right. What are they really about to solve? And, you know, Tom, that feeling of being in the room where you know, nobody even really believes that big fat number that comes out of the yeah. calculator. I think we've all lived through that pain. I had one experience where back in the day when I was a value engineer myself, and we were presenting the value case to a chief transformation officer at a big Fortune 500 company. And you know, I had spent many days preparing what I thought was a bulletproof value case. And all the assumptions were well thought through. There was a lot of stress testing that went into the model, but it was all about the model. And I went into that meeting prepared for all the possible objections that would come up and waiting for a wow on the expression of the main buyer. And, you know, when this big number came out, the look he had on his face was one of disgust almost. It was, you know, you just really haven't understood what are we really trying to solve? And the statement that he made that really stuck with me was, he said, MG, if every software vendor like you that walks through these doors delivers on this big ROI number, let me tell you, I would have no cost on my PL statement next year, which was an indication of like, hey, no one buys these big numbers anymore. So that was another, I would say, a moment that really influenced the way we thought about building the Kovama platform is this credibility. How do you build credibility behind yeah. what your product is actually going to do? 
love that you said it because it's about credibility it's about trust on both ends that's right because otherwise the number is yeah i mean people need to believe it themselves they need to sell it to their boss yeah and i love that that statement from your customer because that's true you know the golden mountains yeah. that we all promise so i mean kind of yeah you started i mean typically doing the consulting work doing the hard things that don't scale through a consultancy uh, framework then you made a switch and started to build products in that transition towards creating that infrastructure what has been a decision that appeared to be very important to the success you have right now so i would say that something that we did differently was in our research so we were not product people we were consultants and we were building a prototype was also a new learning experience for us we obviously had a lot of knowledge about the space and the problems that we were solving but something that we did differently which now looking back has really served us well is when we did interviews we did interviews not just on the seller side but also on the buyer side and we almost split our efforts half and half and we said right let's interview 20 companies that sell enterprise software solutions and let's interview another 20 companies or individuals that have a lot of experience buying enterprise software and i feel like that's probably one thing that went a long way in terms of us building a product which is really a two-sided platform if you look at it rather than a unidirectional sales tool if you will smart that's exactly how you came up with all the aha moments about yeah and finding that tipping point moment in the sales cycle as you explained earlier on yeah i like that that's what ransomware is all about it's psychological pressure ransomware when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom attacks are on the rise and russian gangs are making billions of dollars the moment i got that message i knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true the post cold war era is over dot com the hacking a new season from crowd network with me katie puckrick just search for dot com that's d o t c o m and subscribe So what has been the hardest not to crack in this process? Was it technology, was it people, was it something else? Well, I think Tom there's still a lot of really hard nuts to crack. We we, we, have, we have a long long way to go. But I would say that the biggest objection that we were hitting in sales cycles was you know what MG we love the Kuvama vision and this all sounds really cool but our sellers they just have too many tools today and tech stack is already too crowded telling them they need to use one more tool is just i mean the change management effort involved with that is huge that is still a common objection that we hear when we're pitching i won't yep. say that we've cracked that nut yet but what we have been learning and as we have moved from customer number 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 is that hey we need to focus on actually building an experience that the user himself or herself wants to they want to use the tool right this is not something that sales management or the cro's has a mandate everybody go in and use kuvama i'm going to monitor it i'm going to track you i'm going to smash you on the head if you don't use it because i think sometimes that can be an effective approach right where it's, this is a mandate it's not a democracy everybody uses it 
I feel like where we've really found success is having sellers say, I want to use this and it is something that makes my life a lot easier. I don't have to do a lot of prep before a meeting. I don't have to go hunting on SharePoint for a lot of collateral. I don't need to bring five other smart people in the room to communicate value. This is making my life easy and it's making me look really smart in front of my customer and drive an engaging conversation early on. You know, where that's helped most, I would say, is with the new sellers. So a new seller comes on board and they have so much to learn. They have to learn the solution. They have to learn the customer industry. They have to learn where all the different pieces of product marketing collateral are stored. And it's a lot and it's a steep learning curve. And in two weeks, they have to report on their pipeline. It's not easy, right? It's not easy. So making it easy for them has really been, I would say, a guiding principle in terms of how we've approached solving this problem set. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it tells so much about the fact that we are, I mean, no matter how much technology is going to be around, it's still it's still a matter of people and what mm-hmm. different people are going through and what they have to prove. And it's not down to whether the functionality fits yes or no, but this is this is about feeling more secure, more at ease and having an ability to make an impact. And I mean, I can also understand the arguments from people that have been in this job for, for 20 years. You know, I'm always doing this. I've always done it this way. Why should I change? That's right. And for those people, and, and especially for, so I, that's a really interesting point on, because we absolutely hit upon the veteran sellers who have been crushing it for their entire sales career. Right? And they've, they're like, look, I'm the expert on selling on value. I don't need a piece of technology to tell me how I can do my job better. And I think there was, there was almost like two interesting outcomes from a lot of those conversations. One was, okay, expert veteran hero seller, how can we take all the knowledge in your head and codify that into the platform? How can yeah. we map that out? And how can we get it into the hands of the average seller or the new seller who hasn't got that 20 years of experience? That was you know huge, huge. I feel like even just communicating that way, that went a long way. And then the other interesting development has also been, even for the veteran seller, this is a way to minimize the effort before or the minimize the preparation almost before every meeting and minimize the time and the effort in sending those follow-up emails. And even for the, you know, I would say in my experience working with B2B software salespeople, the best ones they do a lot of prep. They really do personalize the experience for the customer. They listen, they send the right communication. The follow-ups after every meeting is well thought through. This is shortcutting a lot of that. So even for the ones who've done it a long time, they see the benefits in saying like, all right, this is doing exactly what I was doing, but doing it faster and I don't need to prep as much. I really like that approach of using people that are becoming almost like a hurdle to the sales make actually make them the hero and leverage their knowledge so that the rest of the organization can actually benefit from it. It's like, again, it's working with people and it's about status. It's about being acknowledged and being recognized for what they've done well and then working on together. Is this something that also helps an organization really personalize the system to their own way of working? Is that an important aspect? 
It is huge. And that key word you hit on being personalized. When we would talk about best practices as consultants on how the right way to do things is to uncover specific customer challenges, map those unique challenges to KPIs and how solution would impact it. The feedback that we would get was, okay, guys, this all sounds great, but this is motherhood and apple pie. You can't scale that. Of course, it's best practice, but hey, I need to run a business over here and I can't hire another five expensive consultants like you. And this personalized piece is so important that, you know, it is really, I would say, foundational to how we've approached this. It's like, how can you personalize value selling at scale? And I think there's two components to that, right? One is on the customer side and how can you personalize their challenges so it doesn't feel like a generic PowerPoint that comes out. It's much more in their language based on their specific company and industry, but also from the solution provider side, right? How can you showcase and differentiate, not just based on the value you provide, but also making the point that, look, we are so committed to delivering value that we differentiate on our methodology. So we're discovering the value with you, not just so that we can sell you licenses, but also so that we can track and report on the value that is being discovered today. So it's not a one-time, let's build a beautiful business case, sell the deal, pop the champagne, but no, it's that step one of the journey where now that you've documented the challenges that are being solved in the sales cycle, how can customer success pick up on that? How can they track based on what was promised in the sales cycle? And what we find is customer success, they know what the customer has bought, but they don't know why the customer has bought. So really focusing on that why and tracking, we feel like that's again an opportunity for companies to personalize their methodology and differentiate based on that. Exactly. Where do you particularly see most value coming out? At what point is this approach going to make a big impact for a SaaS vendor? Is it typically enterprise? Is it mid-market? I mean, what are the ranges there? Yeah. So, Tony, you know, we are still, I would say, relatively early in a journey. We have, I would say, what we have found, we have found product market fit in the enterprise. So we've got significant success stories and it's working there. Recently, we've also got traction with early stage companies, scale-ups talking about seed stage, series A stage, where there's about 1 million in ARR. And the problem that they have is a lot of the know-how is in the founder's head. Or there are a couple of of hero sellers. And again, they're looking to scale their go-to-market efforts. But if all the knowledge is in the founders' heads and they need to go to every meeting, that's just not a model that's going to scale. So recently, and this is just over the last three or four months where we've started finding traction with these early stage companies, we say like, oh, this is what I need to scale my know-how. And this is how I can equip not just new salespeople, but also partner channels, 
also yeah. the SDRs, BDRs who are doing a lot of lead gen, how can they better qualify leads? So we're starting to see, again, it's early days, but we're starting to see signs of success with this new segment that is pushing us in the direction of how can we build out our self-serve capabilities and become easy to use and deploy for a new company. And we're actually in the process of signing up a dozen or so design partners who we can partner with and evaluate this segment and really build out a, a roadmap for this new segment. So it's a very exciting time for us, which would, I feel like another six months, we'll really know whether we can address not just the enterprise segment, but also the, the scale-up segment. Fascinating. It's always interesting to see how you can, or you, or you think it's in the larger organizations and then suddenly it opens up a completely new niche with a challenge that you didn't even think about. Because yeah. you, but it's a real thing, you know, founder-led sales can be a big problem. How do you get, get behind it? Really cool. I mean, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, which is about the 10 traits that define software companies that people start talking about and keep talking about. I mean, you're clearly building something that has a resonation in the market on the, both the, the vendor and the sales side or the buyer side. What do you believe are yeah, critical ingredients that you have to incorporate in your company to become remarkable in the eyes of your customer? Yeah, so Ton, I would like for Kubama to be remarkable one day. I feel like we still have a long way to go, but I believe that if we continue to focus on making this solution so easy to use and provide value on both sides, then word is going to spread. People are going to talk about it. So I would say that's a guiding principle. I definitely can't sit here and say that we've cracked this nut and we're remarkable today, but this is our strategy to becoming remarkable. And I have read your book and a lot of what you mentioned, you know, feels like we are following a lot of that advice in the way we're building out our product roadmap. That's good to hear. I'm on a mission there. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's a continuous thing, right? That bar always keeps going up because what we talk about today is not what we talk about tomorrow anymore. Yeah, looking at the time here, yeah, one more thing from the whole sales cycle. You said we started selling. some point, we, we hit that point where the aha moment, moment came in, whereby the seller started to, the, kind of, the gravity started to move from the seller to the buyer and the buyer getting really enthusiastic about it. As you started getting more and more demand in the market and growing the business, what has been a big lesson learned on the sales side? Possibly what would you do different if you could do it again? If we could do it again, I would say that we would, you know, people say eat our own dog food. I like to say we drink our own champagne. And it, <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds so obvious, but we need to use Kuvama to sell Kuvama. And that is something that we have started doing over the last six, eight months. We had to learn enough about our customers so that we could use it in our sales cycles. But now that we have started using it, and again, fundamentally, starting with what are the challenges that you're solving, not starting with a demo. If we had to do it all over again, we would have started with using Kuvama for Kuvama earlier. Even though there was a lot that we didn't know and a lot that we were figuring out, we would still start with you know, throwing something out there, throwing KPIs out there and getting reactions and using a lot of that feedback to continually 
learn and improve and build that flywheel that you talk about. So yeah, I would say that would be something we'd actively try and do differently. Yeah, it's smart. And there's not a lot of vendors at the end that can use their own product to sell it. Uh, but if there's one vendor that can, it's you. So I get that. And it's and it's smart to do. And uh, yeah, you instantly get... Yeah, the value proposition is almost... You say we're not de demoing it, but you're actually demoing it with really proving the value of it as you go along. So technically, it's a demo. But there's one question around this because I see, I mean, I speak to a lot of CEOs of software companies and the sales teams, marketing teams. And what I see a lot is that the conversation with a customer is one aspect of a meeting and then the demo is another part of the same meeting. What would you advise there? Yeah, so Don, again, there's the best practice answer and then there's reality, right? And there's, you know, I've absolutely been in many sales meetings myself where The first call is discovery and it's not demo, but two minutes into that, your customer is saying, look, let me see the product. I want to see the product, right? And how do you navigate from that so that you get a second call? We like to move away from even using the schedule a demo or next step is a demo, but over-indexing almost on discovery, not demo. And what we have on our website is start my discovery button. And it's like, hey, customer, if you want a demo, absolutely, you can self-serve. You can click the button on the website and you can walk through a demo of this yourself. Now, that's serving two purposes. It's serving the purpose of helping the customer. It's bringing to life the product for them. But yeah, what it's yeah. also doing is it is helping them articulate their needs and giving them a directional indication of how Kuvama would, would benefit them. And I see this being a fairly simple solution to how do you move away from the demo meeting is don't call it a demo meeting. It's a discovery meeting. And guess what? You can have that discovery on your website. I think there's more and more research. You know, this is definitely something you talk about in your book as well, where buyers want to be more informed before they schedule a call with a salesperson. How can they be more informed? What can you give them ahead of spending your salesperson's time and also having them arrive to the conversation more educated? And yeah, having a lot of this as part of your lead gen, lead qualification process, I think it, it accomplishes multiple objectives. Completely agree. Wise advice. Hopefully at some point, Yeah, this whole notion of we need to show the product will actually move away. Hmm. First of all, the, the word demo is something that is, is a word that I hate myself. I always call yeah. it proof of value. Yeah. And at, at the end, if you kind of approach it like that, the proof of value can only come after you understand what needs that value to be about, which is about your customer. Absolutely. So I think we're on the same page there. <laughs> yeah. You know, being an entrepreneur right now, you know, six, you, you said if you asked me six years ago, I wouldn't use the word entrepreneur. So you became one. In that process, kind of the journey that we've just discussed, from all the lessons that you learned and the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained, what would be a do and what would be a don't that you would give to aspiring CEOs or peer CEOs that yeah, kind of want to level up? Yeah. So in my perspective is limited to being an early stage CEO. So this do might not be a do 
two years from now. But I'll index to where we are and, and the journey that we've been on so far. You know, so imagine you're swimming from point A to point B, and you're swimming in the direction of point B, and there's a current, and the current is pulling you in a different direction. Now you can swim against the current and you can keep going towards point B, but that can be tiring. You can lose a lot of your energy. You might still get to point B, or you can swim with the current and see where the current takes you. And I would say that's kind of an, an analogy for some of the journey that we've been on so far is, is sometimes you're just getting these strong signs from the market that this is what the market wants and going with the flow sometimes rather than, no, here's what we've decided. Here's what we've written down. Here's what we're going to do and execute on that. I think that has served us well so far. I don't think it's necessarily advice for you know significantly later stage company, but I would say this is my two cents for now on, on the do. On the don't, you know, if I can just share my experience with fundraising, and again, we've raised one round, not a pre-seed round. And one of the pieces of advice that I got was, MG, if you're talking to angel investors, early stage VCs, you need to tell a big grand story. You need to tell such a grand story that they're going to go home to their partner and want to talk about it and just be big, be bold. And I tried that. I tried that. And 15, 20 conversations later, it didn't work. And a lot of the advice that I got from folks who had raised funds before and have been through this kind of journey many, many times, what I learned was you kind of need to go on the journey that they've been on to understand why they have that perspective and why they have that advice. And one, you know, one of the takeaways for me was, you know, fundraising is a very personal thing. And the way in which you approach fundraising, there is no playbook. There isn't a standard pitch deck format that you follow to get money. It really does become about you. And my pivot in fundraising strategy was rather than talking about the big grand vision and how we're going to solve for world peace and hunger was, look, I'm going to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. And by doing that, automatically you're over-indexing on everything that needs to be fixed and all the unknowns out there. And I felt like very quickly that was building credibility with the investors. The investors were like, okay, this founding team, they kind of know a lot of the pitfalls. They're not talking a you know, big game where they've figured everything out. So that was something that I learned was just being really transparent about where we are, all the things that could go wrong and really turning it around to them and saying like, hey, here's the bad and the ugly. How are you going to help us fix the bad and the ugly? Where are you going to help us with this? And I felt like that helped us get a lot of traction. And yeah, very proud of the investors that, that we brought on board who are staying true to their word and are actually helping us network and provide a sounding board. And they have delivered on that promise. 
Yeah, I like that humbleness in you. And I've kind of spotted that already a couple of times. And it brings you a lot, you know, and it's so much about credibility and trust when you're talking about these investment rounds, especially in the early stage, because the risk is so high. Mm -hmm. So I can completely understand that. Thank you very much for this. I mean, I really enjoy this conversation. For the listeners, where can they go to find out more about Kuvama or to connect with you and say hi? Yeah, so kuvama.com, please click on the start my discovery button. I would say that will, within a matter of few minutes, bring to life what we do and what we're about. Besides that, we are fairly active on LinkedIn. So lots of LinkedIn posts. You can follow us on LinkedIn and would love to connect with you personally as well. Very good. Well, thank you very much, MG. We already spoke before and that's where I got inspired already. And thanks for sharing the journey, like the choices that you made, the lessons that you've learned. And I'll keep following you going forward because yeah, what you do is dear to my heart. Likewise, Don. Looking forward to more nuggets of wisdom in your LinkedIn post and hopefully some more books to come our way as well. And definitely. We're working on the second as, as we speak. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Don. Thank you. Bye-bye. And this ends my conversation with MG. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, Please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to MG Gurbajani, co-founder and CEO of Kuvama. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.